This is it, the exciting conclusion to our series, The Way of the Kingdom. You know, anytime I design a sermon series, most of the time there's like one specific Sunday that I'm looking forward to, one specific sermon that I'm looking ahead and saying, I can't wait till we get to that part in the series. And that is today, okay? So you came on a good day, hopefully. Uh, But it's been 13 weeks of waiting for this and anticipation. I've got a great anticipation for what God is going to say to us today. But uh, it's been a 13-week series, plus we broke for Christmas. So it's been a long haul, but I think this has been a really important series for our church. Really, the Sermon on the Mount are Jesus' most important words. It's his vision for the kingdom. It's, it's him answering the question, how are we to live? How are followers of Jesus to live in the kingdom that Jesus is establishing here on earth and into eternity? So let me read the entirety of our text today. It's the last uh, bunch of verses in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're in chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 13 to 29. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So universally, commentators tend to agree that starting in verse 13, where we started today, is the beginning of Jesus' conclusion. He's wrapping things up. He's called the keyboard player to the stage. The synth music is going. Everything's getting a little bit more emotional. And Jesus is bringing it to a close. And like most preachers, once he says in conclusion, he's got four more points to make. Um, I'm going to do my best today. But because it's his conclusion, he's not adding more information. He's He's not adding additional thoughts. He's actually summarizing all the thoughts of the sermon, wrapping things up and bringing us to a conclusion and bringing us actually to a choice. One of the things we've seen throughout the whole sermon is a pattern. We've seen this rhetorical technique where Jesus compares and contrasts two things that look similar on the outside, but on the inside are totally different. I've used examples in in the series like, like two cups of coffee, one decaf and one caffeinated. You can't tell the difference from looking at them or smelling them or even tasting them. But for me, I would be able to tell the difference an hour later if I was still tired and had a headache, right? 
Or two nice, shiny, juicy-looking apples. Both look delicious on the outside, but one of them has a worm on the inside. You don't always know the difference just by looking at something from the surface. Years ago, I was at a Christmas party, and uh, I think it was like my friend's parents' Christmas party. So I was a teenager. Me and some of the teenage guys in the church were there, and then a whole bunch of adults, you know, people my age now were there, and uh, we're hanging out, and uh, there's food everywhere, right? Food everywhere, and at that point in my life, I could eat anything and everything I wanted. It just turned into infinite teenage energy. It was awesome, but one of the things they had on the spread were um, cream puffs. I love cream puffs, right? They look like a donut hole, and on the inside, they're filled with like a sugary cream that you, you bite into them and it just explodes into this sugary, delicious taste in your mouth. And so I put a whole bunch of stuff on my plate, also put some cream puffs on my plate, and then went and sat down in the living room. I sat on the couch. There was like five people on the couch, people everywhere. And I go to uh, pop one of these cream puffs in my mouth. And instead of the explosion of sugary cream in my mouth, it was an explosion of rancid, sour cream. And I, I wanted to, in that moment, just spit it everywhere. But there was a full room, and everybody's there, and I was brought up to be, you know, more polite than that and not make a scene. And so I just kind of held this in my mouth. I got up, and I quietly excused myself, went to the bathroom, and spat it out in the toilet, everything, right? Got rid of it. And uh, so then I'm thinking, as I come back into the living room, am I supposed to expose publicly the cream puff fiasco. Like, do I embarrass the host? Do I tell the whole room, don't eat your cream puffs? There was cream puffs on everybody's plate. What was I going to do? And then all of a sudden, somebody holding a cream puff in their hand said, these fish balls are delicious. <laughs> what to me looked like a cream puff on the outside was a fish ball. It was the same kind of batter outside, but inside it was filled with salmon or whatever. And it wasn't rancid. It wasn't bad. It was just fish. But when you expect cream and you eat fish, it's horrifying. I mean, fish balls are gross. Anyway, who would do that when you could have cream puffs? But the only reason it tasted rancid to me was because I thought it was something else. It was, it, it, it was something on the outside that looked like something else. And now, obviously, every time cream, someone has cream puffs, I check or I ask. These are cream puffs, right? But as Jesus concludes his sermon, this is what he's doing. He's using this rhetorical device of comparing and contrasting two things that look the same. There's two roads, he says, but one kills its travelers. There's two sheep, but one is a wolf that will devour you. There's two trees, but one has poisonous fruit. There's two houses, but one will collapse and crush its occupants. On the surface, they all look the same. You have to learn how to dig underneath to know which is which. So we've heard this throughout the whole sermon. Again, Jesus is just wrapping up what he's already been saying. There's two kinds of salt. One that works to, to preserve and one that just looks like salt and actually is useless. There's two kinds of light, one that shines and one that's hidden and use, unhelpful. There are two kinds of people who don't murder. There's the person who would murder if they could get away with it. And then there's the person who has learned to deal with the anger in their heart. There are two kinds of people who pray. One who does it just to put on a show for others to see and one who does it just because they love God. 
There are two kinds of people who give offerings, one who does it to show off their wealth and one who does it just because they love the Lord and want to support ministry and don't need attention. And more. It's all over the sermon. If you read it in light of this, you see it everywhere. But in all of these examples, it can be extremely hard to judge from the outside which is which. That's why Jesus said uh, earlier in chapter 7, do not judge. It's hard to judge the motivations of a person's heart just from external experiences. So instead of judging, we're to love people and do to others as they would, as we would have them do to us. But at the same time, Jesus teaches us how to watch for signs. Because when we're on this road he talks about, there's going to be other travelers who are wolves in sheep's clothing, and we need to learn how to discern which people to trust to lead us in the right direction and who not to. On this road we're traveling, there's going to be food along the way that's, that's said to be nourishing for us, but some of it's going to poison us or, or leave a bad taste in our mouth. We need to be able to see the signs on our journey. Among other things, the Sermon on the Mount is a critique of bad religion. It's a critique of the kind of faith system that focuses all its energy on external appearances while ignoring the deeper issues of the heart. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot happening. But the reality is Jesus does expect his followers to act differently than the rest of the world. He expects his followers to obey his teaching. But our right action, that is our righteousness in Jesus' words, and our obedience to Jesus is meant to come not just as an external way of living that, that is, is just for performance or show, but it's meant to come out of the overflow of a transformed heart. It's not meant to be a performance to impress people or just something to do so we can tick off the box so we can earn our way into God's grace. It's meant to come out of the overflow of a transformed heart. So let's think of an example. Why do people lie? What motivates a person to lie? As someone once said, lying is an abomination to the Lord, yet an ever-present help in times of trouble. You can laugh at that, it's okay. What are, what are the basic motivations for lying? Number one, fear. We lie because we're afraid that the truth will get us into trouble. Or because we're afraid that the truth will cause us to lose something we value. So I'll lie to my parents so I don't get punished. I'll lie on my taxes so I don't have to pay extra money. We lie because of fear of getting in trouble or losing something we value. Motivation number two, pride. We lie because we worry that the truth will make us look bad. You lie to your personal trainer. Yes, I did stick with my diet this week. A pastor might lie to his congregation to make himself look like he doesn't struggle, just like any other person. That would make me look bad. Fear and pride cause us to lie. These are unrighteous motivations that come from an unrighteous heart and lead to an unrighteous action. But think about if your righteousness or your Christianity is based solely on external behaviors, solely on external righteousness. You're a, you're a good person. You do good things. You don't do bad things like lying. You always tell the truth because 
because to lie is a sin and sin leads to death, so you never lie. But think about this religious person whose righteousness is merely external, merely about legalistic adherence to the rules, but doesn't come from a transformed heart. What's motivating that person to tell the truth? Well, it could be fear. If I lie, God will punish me. You know where liars go, right? Liars go to hell. I don't want to lie. I don't want to go to hell. So I'm going to tell the truth. Or it could be out of pride. If I lie, then I'm no better than those dirty, rotten sinners. I'm better than that. I'm, I'm a man of integrity. I, I'm above reproach. I tell the truth. Just like the lying person, the truth-telling person can be motivated by fear and pride, which are unrighteous motivations that come from an unrighteous heart, even if the actions are acts of righteousness. So let me ask you, from what we know about Jesus, how does he view this? If your motivations for lying are fear and pride, and your motivations for telling the truth are fear and pride, what's the difference between lying and telling the truth? In Jesus' mind, there's no difference. Because righteousness for Jesus is all about the motivations of the heart. That's why Jesus said there's no difference between someone who doesn't murder just to avoid getting in trouble and someone who, uh, pardon me, there's no difference between someone who doesn't murder just because they wouldn't want to avoid getting in trouble, but they would if they could get away with it. There's no difference between that person and the person who actually does it. He says there's still unrighteousness in the heart either way, and neither of them lead to life in the kingdom of God. If your heart is full of fear and pride, there's no difference between truth and lies, good deeds and bad deeds, morality and immorality. Jesus' kingdom, listen to this, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of good people. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of people with transformed hearts. So how do you get that transformed heart? Well, hopefully you've been with us for the last 13 weeks. <laughs> Jesus has been teaching us all along. And this is where the challenge comes. Because Jesus still expects his followers to behave in certain ways. He still expects us to do righteous actions. He still expects us to obey him. He expects us to tell the truth. He expects us to pray and give offerings and to fast. He expects us not to murder and to not commit adultery. He expects us to love our enemies. He expects us to obey him. Yes. Following Jesus is a life of obedience to the Lord of all, the King of the kingdom. Verse 21 of our text today says, where Jesus tells us, it's not enough just to call me Lord. Disciples and those who enter the kingdom are the ones who do the will of the Father. Imagine, imagine standing before Jesus someday and trying to justify why you didn't do what he said. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's been teaching us how to do all these things in ways that battle against our tendency toward bad religion and how to live righteously as the kind of person who has a soft heart toward the things of God and toward the people God loves. And ultimately, the way we receive that transformed heart is by asking, seeking, and knocking. And our Heavenly Father provides everything we need. We need God's help to live in God's kingdom as transformed people. So as Jesus concludes his sermon, he gives final warnings 
and final instructions to those who would be his followers and what it means to live righteously in his kingdom. And there's so much depth to these last few verses we read today, but let me make two final observations as we close our series. Number one, the way of the kingdom is a journey. Verse 13 to 14, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Throughout Jesus' teachings, he is unapologetic about the exclusivity of his claims. Jesus doesn't say that there's many ways to experience eternal life. He says there is one way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say I'm a way, a truth, and a way to live life. He says there's only one way. The gate is small. The path is narrow. Not everyone will follow the right path. In fact, it's likely that the majority won't. The wording used in these verses refers to persecution, which is a theme throughout the sermon. The narrow path is the path of persecution. It's the path of resistance. It's the path where people will disagree with you. It's the path where people may make fun of you. It's the path where people may harm you for the things that you believe in and are convicted by. The way of the kingdom is restricted because not everyone is going to agree with the road you've decided to take. The wide path and the wide gate is the path of least resistance. It's the path where you don't need to worry about people disagreeing with you or making fun of you for standing up for your convictions because the broad path is the path of plurality where everybody is right and everything's okay. One of the best-selling books of all time is John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. I recommend it. It's fantastic. It's an allegory representing the, uh, the human journey in the pursuit of eternal life. The main character's name is Christian, and you follow him along the path toward the celestial city, and he gets in all kinds of trouble along the way, meets all kinds of interesting people who either help or hinder his progress. And near the beginning of the story... Christian meets a character named Goodwill who directs him to enter through a small gate, which is the start of the journey along a narrow path toward the celestial city, which is eternal life. As Christian ponders the invitation, he says, how will I know the way? Are there any twists and turns that will make me get lost? Goodwill says, yes, there are many ways that branch off from this and they are crooked and wide. But here's the how you can distinguish right from wrong, the right only being straight and narrow. The problem, anytime you and I try to walk in a straight line, is that eventually you will encounter an obstacle. And the temptation, which Christian had many times in his story, he was tempted or, or swayed by others, and he sometimes succumbed to the temptation to try a different path that looked at first easier but ultimately it led him into all kinds of trouble, which Jesus had to rescue him from. It's a way that causes less challenge at first. It's a way that seems more comfortable. It's a way that's more agreeable to others, a path where you can find safety in the crowd. The Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Friends, the path of life that Jesus lays out for us is long, and difficult, and full of challenges and obstacles, but it is the only path to life. 
And to be clear, the narrow gate and the narrow path that Jesus is referring to is not just agreement with a set of theological ideas, but it is trusting Jesus enough to do what he says and to do the will of the Father that Jesus revealed to us. Many will say, Lord, Lord, but not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one place where people criticize Christianity. It's so arrogant of you to believe that that only your beliefs lead to eternal life. There are so many religions and so many paths and so many ways to experience God. How can you say there is only one way and one path? Well, here's the thing. Before Jesus, there were zero paths and zero ways. So one is pretty good. And if there's one that's open, freely given by grace to all, not through works, but by grace to all, that's a pretty gracious gift from God. When I was a kid, my family watched a movie about a child who fell down a well and got stuck. And it has caused an irrational fear of wells my entire life. It's almost like I think like wells are just waiting around the corner to, to cause you to fall into them. But the truth is, I, don't even, I haven't even seen a well in like 10 years. Um, anyways, so I'm scared of wells, just so you know. But this child got, got stuck in a well, and, and it was like days before they were able to rescue, rescue her out. I can't remember what the movie was called. But imagine you've fallen down a well. You're stuck. No ability to get out. The only hope is for someone outside the well to come and rescue you. The rescue team arrives, they, they come to the scene, and they throw a rope down the well. And you notice as it comes down, it's one of those uh, manila hemp ropes, you know, the really thick ones, thick braids, they're, they're brown and kind of coarse. They throw down that, uh, that down to you, and they call down, grab onto the rope, and we will pull you to safety. They have provided a way of salvation. Then you shout out to the rescuers, I would prefer that you send down a rope made of nylon. (laughs) Or maybe you can give me three or four options for different kinds of rescue, and then I can select one that suits my needs the best. It's ridiculous to consider. One way of salvation is more than enough. The reality is, I think our frustration with God's one-way plan is that it reveals the corruption of the human heart our desire to rule and reign instead of God. Because if God had offered a thousand ways of salvation, we would have demanded a thousand and one. The way of the kingdom is a journey. It's a journey down a narrow path. Secondly, the way of the kingdom is a construction project. These are the final, final words of Jesus' sermon, his concluding moment, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. There are two houses, Jesus says. Both look the same. Only one is built with a foundation on solid rock. Only one will survive when the winds and the rains come. This is not a difficult image to understand. Even people like me who aren't carpenters know that every structure needs a foundation built on something solid. 
and secure. You build a house on a beach, a wave comes, pulls the sand away, the house begins to sink in the unstable foundation. But if you dig deep and find some bedrock and use stone or concrete to create a foundation, that house will stand even in a storm. And what does Jesus say provides a strong foundation for our lives? He says his words. But not just his words. The foundation is formed when we put his words into practice. Because you can have all the construction materials you need for a house laying around, but that will do you no good. It has to be built to be made secure. Jesus' brother James, I think, reflecting on Jesus' sermon, says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's when the foundation and the house is built that will stand. When we trust Jesus enough to actually forgive our enemies and pray for our persecutors. When we trust Jesus enough not to make the pursuit of wealth our highest priority. When we trust him enough to refuse to judge others, but instead do to others as we would have them do to us. When we implement the practices of prayer and giving and fasting, not just out of religious obligation and not to put on a show, but because we love God and love his church. Instead of grasping and taking and competing with others, we ask, seek, and knock, and trust our Heavenly Father to provide what we need. In doing what Jesus says, we will build a firm foundation for a life that is blessed and secure. This language reminds me of a big moment in the Bible. Building our foundation on the practice of Jesus' word, that, that language reminds me John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, which is reflecting back to the book of Genesis, where God spoke his word and creation was formed and brought into existence. Creation is formed by the word of God. The heavens and the earth are created by his voice. The foundation of reality itself is laid by the word of God, and that word is Jesus Christ himself. If the heavens and the earth are formed by the word of God, if the cosmos itself is laid on the foundation of God's word, then what better, more secure foundation for us to build our lives upon? Imagine thinking that something other than the power that created the universe itself, something else would create a more secure foundation. And I want you to see what Jesus says. He says the wind and the waves are coming, representing the chaos of life and disorder and uncreation that happens when sin enters the world. The wind and the waves are coming. Whatever house you are building will at some point get slammed by a storm. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, but will the house stand? Christians are not immune to challenges or suffering or pain, but Jesus provides us with a foundation so that we will come out on the other side standing and standing in the eternal life that God has set before us. Jesus knows that everyone is a builder. Everyone is building their life. Everyone's building their identity. Everybody is building their purpose on something. To deny Jesus is to deny him while standing on something that you think is a firmer foundation than his words. You're saying, I have a better foundation than the one Jesus offers. But is it a secure foundation? 
Will your money rescue you? Will your status give you eternal life? Will pleasures keep you secure when the storm comes? We're all builders. We all select materials for a foundation and where to put it. But will that make your house stand when the storm comes? Only Jesus can do that. Only by putting his teachings into practice will we see our lives built on a secure, stable foundation. In a moment, we're going to take communion. It's a remembrance of Jesus' body and blood. The elements are located at these tables up front, and there's some in the balcony as well. And I'll invite you to come get those, grab them, and, and head back to your seat to, to wait for further instructions. But here's what Jesus' whole sermon comes down to. His whole sermon comes down to a choice that he invites you and I to make. Some of you have been coming to church for a while, but it's just about a routine, or it's just about superficial experiences or preferences. It's not a wholehearted committed to Jesus, commitment to Jesus and the way of his kingdom. Some of you are praising Jesus on Sunday, but your life is being built on a different foundation Monday to Saturday. Some of you started on the narrow path, but somehow were convinced to take a path that seemed like it might be easier. All I can say to each one of you, and all I can say to myself at the same time, is we need to listen to Jesus. To build a firm foundation on the practice of his word. Follow his way and his way alone, because it's the only way that leads to the life that deep down in your heart you truly desire. We said at the beginning of the series that the Sermon on the Mount is actually hyperlinking back to the time when Moses gave the law. There's five sections of the Sermon on the Mount that reflect back on the five books of Moses, but also the fact that Jesus, like Moses, got up on a mountain and declared the word of God and said, build your life on these principles and practices. This is the firm foundation. And Jesus' conclusion sounds a lot like the conclusion Moses came to after he proclaimed God's word. He said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting a life that is secure and stable, one that will stand against the storm, against a life that will be unable to stand in the last day. Jesus has shown us the way of the kingdom, the way to everlasting life. So the choice we have to make today is will you choose life?
following Jesus doesn't mean your life won't be hard. It just means that your life will stand securely on the only foundation that won't collapse when the storms come. It won't be destroyed. In Jesus, you will have eternal life, life that is truly life. And how do we know that he won't fail us? How do we know that it's worth taking the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 75 years of our lives to trust him and follow his teachings? Because he didn't just send instructions from afar. He didn't just point the way to a path that no one else had followed. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the gate. He is the path. He is the rock on which we stand. John 10, 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. God got off his throne and lived among us. He laid himself down. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the curtain in the temple that once separated humans from God's presence. But Jesus has been torn apart so that we can start the path to God's presence. He was slaughtered so that he could make a way for us to have eternal life. You can know that he will lead you to life because Jesus came to back to life after he died. And he said, hey, I'm not just pointing the way. I've showed you the way. I am the way. Look, I'm alive. I was dead and I am alive again. You can trust me. Attach yourself to me and you too will experience life. So when we take communion together, when we eat the bread and drink of the cup, it's a declaration of the death that made the way of life possible. The broken body became the gate and his words provide a firm foundation on which to build our lives toward eternity. It's a declaration of the choice that you have made. You've chosen life through Jesus. The invitation to take communion is open to each person who says, yes, I will put my faith in Jesus. Yes, I will not just listen to his words, but I will practice what he has taught me. So I invite you, you who declare faith in Jesus, you who not just call him Lord, but desire to do the will of the Father. By coming to take communion today, you've made the choice to build your life on a firm foundation. Let me pray and then you can come. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your life. Thank you, God, that you sent Jesus into the world pour out your salvation through his blood, to open a way through his broken body. And Jesus, you laid before us the path of life to trust in you, to walk with you, to be guided by you, and to, to trust you enough to actually do what you said. So thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just point the way, you are the way, and you poured out your blood and allowed your body to be broken for our salvation. Today we choose life. Today we choose life, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you come?